Blog Talk Radio. settings correct because we just got on the blog talk at the last minute. Uh, This is the January 18th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and uh, I am just a little bit disoriented because it was just seconds before airtime that I was permitted to get onto the Blog Talk site. It's been down, I guess, a lot of the morning. I'm not sure why that has been, but um, other people have been struggling to get connected as well. So let me go over to the chat room and see if people, yeah, some people are filing in now, which is good. Uh, Some people are saying, though, no sound. Maybe you need to refresh. I'm going to go ahead and type refresh into the chat room here. We're going to have a little bit of sausage radio for a bit. Um, Refresh. See if you guys can hear me. Okay, I'm typing some stuff here. Okay, people are hearing. Yay! Yeah, so I got into the studio only in the very last second. There was access restricted to the blog. Everyone was getting servers, busy messages and stuff, including me. So, yay, the show is a go. Yeah, that's right. Tim in the chat room says, the show is a go. I'm going to have to go ahead and run over to social media. Oh, people are saying that everything is slow on Blog Talk today. You know, I went over on Twitter and I was seeing some messages that, you know, Block Talk is like, you know, our engineers are working on the problem and everything. And I thought those were current messages. Always check the dateline on everything, on news stories, on tweets and everything else. So these tweets from our engineers are working on the problem were from January 11th. But I know that a lot of people, uh, not just me, were having trouble this morning. Uh, okay, so yeah, so let me go over to the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook and just let people know um, that the show is live now. (laughs) You hear my little beeps in the background um, from Facebook. Uh, The show is live now. Send that out there. Okay, hopefully we're going to be okay. Let me see. Uh, James, who I'm hoping is going to be here. Yay, he says he can hear now. Excellent. Good, good, good. Yay. I'm responding. James, you're listening, and I'm responding. This is Meta Meta Sausage Radio. Okay. Now, 
where am I in terms of, okay, I've got the chat, and then where's my studio? <laughs> did I disconnect from my studio? I probably did. I think I disconnected from my studio. Okay. Let me get over here. I think I'm still connected, but let me make sure that that's the case. Am I still connected, you guys? Can you hear me? Are we doing okay? Still connected? Let me know if I'm still connected. I closed a window. Okay, good. Okay. So let's start over again. Good afternoon. This is the January 18th. 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and here we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. If you go over to the blog today at don'tletitgo.com, you can see the title of today's show. It is Heroes and Dogmatists, and there were a number, yeah, I'm getting, still getting some replies here on social media. Um, there were a number of, um, yeah, he says I can hear, excellent. Uh, there were a, a number of things I was thinking of doing with the show today. I was thinking, I, I mean, I wanted to talk about Martin Luther King Jr. because when I was posting a favorite quotation from him, I was getting a barrage of criticism of Martin Luther King on the thread. It was actually quite rude, and then I ended up having to block this person. Uh, you know, so I wanted to, you know, say something about him and his defense, why he's a hero, even though perhaps not perfect, 100% in line with our ideas. And this week, it's very, very relevant to say the same thing about Edward Snowden, because there's about two days left in which, you know, Barack Obama could pardon him. And I strongly believe that Snowden is a hero and that he should be pardoned. And certainly if you're going to give a commuted sentence to Chelsea Manning, then you should pardon Edward Snowden. And so I want to talk some about that. And then the dogmatist part of the title, in part you could say, okay, i got a transition going because it's pretty dogmatic to say that we're not going to give credit to Martin Luther King where it's due simply because there were maybe some errors that he made. Uh, so that's that's dogmatic in, in a certain way. But moreover, I've been having a discussion with a Facebook friend about the problem of dogmatism and objectivism. And actually not a long discussion about that, but there was a mention of dogmatism. And whenever I actually bump up against something in reality, it gets me thinking about the issue afresh. So I have some thoughts on that as well. If you go to the blog, like I said, don'tletitgo.com, you can see all the program notes, and some of them are about this issue of heroes, uh, not so much about dogmatism. These are thoughts off the top of my head, but I have some other stories that I want to talk about as well, so you can see those. And if you'd like to call in and talk to me about anything there on the program notes, the number at which to do so is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. So I see that Ken made it into the chat room. Excellent. And, yeah, people are saying good news. Just two days left until Obama leaves office. Yes, but he's got only two days to redeem himself by pardoning Edward Snowden. I don't know that he can completely redeem himself by pardoning Edward Snowden, but I think that would be a great thing if he does it. Someone had speculated, I can't remember who, on social media that perhaps 
the reason that he commuted the sentence of Manning was to prepare everybody for the pardoning of Snowden, that the pardoning of Snowden would be more palatable as in, you know, as compared to this commuting of the sentence of Manning. If It should only be that. It should only be that that's that, because I'm not so clear that I am excited about commuting the sentence of Manning. I know that Snowden has been in favor of that, and maybe at a certain point we're going to end up agreeing that that was a good thing to do. But to me, that's not as clear a case. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that as well. I I don't know a whole lot about the case of Chelsea Manning. And if you wanted to offer your your thoughts on whether or not that was a good move for him to commute the sentence and leave it so that there's only four more months as opposed to having Manning sitting in prison till 2045, I believe, was the, the date. You can call in and let me know about that too. If you do want to talk when you call in, what you need to do is press the one key, and I'll go ahead and know that when you're sitting there in the queue that you also want to chime in on something. So without further ado, let's go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com. At a certain point, I may have to take a tiny break and run out and get a bottle of water because, like I said, I was struggling with the computer up to the very last second, and all I've got here is half a cup of coffee. I'm probably going to need some some water as well. So today is a little bit of sausage radio. Um, so yeah, heroes and dogmatists. Well, let me just give you, and this is my uh, main exposure to Martin Luther King is through his letter from Birmingham jail, which is something that I've been covering for quite a while in my philosophy of law seminar. And I, I really like it. And he talks about some interesting issues that are great for seminar discussion. One of them, and this is something that I disagree with him on, uh, he actually believes that if there is an unjust law, that you have a moral duty to disobey an unjust law, a moral duty to do that. And whereas I would say in many cases of there being an unjust law that it would be morally acceptable to disobey the law, you would certainly be entitled to do it, and you could decide that that would be something that you want to do. I don't believe that you have a moral duty to disobey. There are so many unjust laws on the book right now. Imagine what it would look like if, right, you know, if you had this moral duty. You'd be going around all day disobeying these laws, and you'd be in jail before you know it, and you'd be unable to do anything to affect change in the law or in society or anything else. So, you know, this idea that you would always have a moral duty. I, I admire him for disobeying what he saw to be an unjust law, which was the law requiring that he get a permit in order to parade and have a protest. Um, you know, the the law on its face actually turned out to be pretty innocuous, but the way that it was applied was in a very racist manner. And so he and his followers went ahead and, and consciously disobeyed it and then, of course, took the the jail sentence and, you know, made a, made a point with that. But in any event, I disagree with him on that. But the thing that I agree on is, and it's very interesting, he's got this great view of extremism. Let me see if I can get back to it. I'm clicking around on, um, on social media because people are still commenting about 
blog talk and whether it's working and stuff. So let me get back to the correct post. I put a link in the program notes to this post on Facebook. It's a publicly available quotation uh, post that you can access. I'm not sure if you can access it if you don't have a Facebook account. Some people still don't want to have Facebook accounts, and I understand that, but there's a lot of good content there that you're missing out on. So if you don't have one, it's probably worth setting one up, even if you're going to only very selectively use it. So here's the quotation that I love on the topic of extremism from Martin Luther King Jr. He says, though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not, a G, you know, was not Jesus an extremist for love? And he goes on and quotes from Jesus, uh, from Jesus. He says, was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? And I'll skip that quote too because I disagree with you know him extolling Jesus and Paul and what they're saying in, the, in these quotations. And then he says about John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. Abraham Lincoln, he quotes, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Again, continuing with King's quotation, he says, the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or love? Will we be extremists for preservation of injustice or the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. End quote. I love this. And nobody ever, you know, cites Martin Luther King Jr. as an advocate of extremism. But whenever extremism is denounced, I always want to throw this in the faces of the liberals out there. It's, it's really excellent. If you go to the objective standard, either the objective standards page on Facebook, you go to their blog, they have some excellent quotations from Martin Luther King as well. His support of Israel's right to exist. Uh, the other person who's been great at digging up quotations from Martin Luther King Jr. is my friend Sunny Lohman. Let me see if I can get over to her page because she had an excellent one this morning, if I recall correctly. She posts a lot, so let me see if I can find it. I have to scroll a little bit here. Yeah, another great MLK quote, she says. And this is actually, this one she found, um, it was posted by a page on Facebook called History at Our House. Uh, I need to look more into History at Our House, but as I understand, it's a really cool supplement to homeschoolers, a, a great resource for homeschoolers. And they went ahead and offered this quotation from Martin Luther King Jr. So let me go ahead and get that post from them. I should, I should have linked to it as well. Um, it says, oh yeah, man is not for the state. The state is made for man. To deprive man of freedom is to relegate him to the status of a thing 
rather than elevate him to the status of a person. Man must never be treated as a means to the end of the state, but always as an end within himself. Now, mind you, that is basically some paraphrase and application of Kant. And, yeah, it it sounds good, treat man as an end in himself, but the way that Kant applied that ended up uh, implying that you should sacrifice yourself for other people. Um, that's that's another topic for another day. We could talk about Kant and the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals, which I, I used to teach. So here's another excellent quotation from Martin Luther King, and this is in 1947 when he was talking about the purpose of education, the purpose of education. And I'm going to skip some of it, but again, Sunny Loman, hat tip to her for posting this quotation. I guess she originally got it from Monica Beth on Facebook. Again, be on Facebook. You'll get some good content sometimes. You have to be selective about it, but it's there. Again, quote from King here. He says, it seems to me that education has a twofold function to perform in the life of man and in society. The one is utility and the other is culture. Education must enable a man to become more efficient, to achieve with increasing facility the legitimate goals of his life. Education must also train one for quick, resolute, and effective thinking. To think incisively and to think for oneself is very difficult. We are prone to let our mental life become invaded by legions of half-truths, prejudices, and propaganda. At this point, I often wonder whether or not education is fulfilling its purpose. The great majority of the so-called educated people do not think logically and scientifically. Even the press the classroom, the platform, and the pulpit in many instances do not give us objective and unbiased truths. To save man from the morass of propaganda, in my opinion, is one of the chief aims of education. Education must enable one to sift and weigh evidence, to discern the true from the false, the real from the unreal, and the facts from the fiction. The function of education, therefore, is to teach one to think intensively and to think critically, but education which stops with efficiency may prove the greatest menace to society. The most dangerous criminal may be the man gifted with reason but with no morals. End quote. And this is apparently from The Purpose of Education, a student paper that he wrote in 1947. So just from this little selection I'm giving you, and I can't continue on, but there's a lot more to dive in. Again, the objective standard has a wealth of information about him as well, and I put a link to a blog post that they have if you go to the program notes at don'tletitgo.com. Very, very admirable person who took action, stood up for his values. If you read Letter from Birmingham Jail, you also see that he does promote this morality of self-sacrifice to a large extent. So was he completely consistent with objectivism? No. Was he heroic? Yes. And if you think of his context and everything that was available to him and what he did with the resources and the mind that he had, it is heroic. I call him a hero. And yet I, you know, on Monday, post that quotation, that favorite of mine from Martin Luther King, and I posted alongside a graphic that the objective standard put there. And all I got was a complaint about mistakes and errors that King had made. So let me go there. Uh, Listen to this tone. It says, thanks to Mike King, I can't refuse to bake a cake for a wedding I don't approve of. 
a theological leftist and a political leftist, the worst of both worlds. Then this guy goes on to say, he should have opposed state-supported segregation but supported freedom of association. Uh, he should have opposed state-supported segregation but supported freedom of association. So the idea is what, you know, that he uh, was in, that Martin Luther King was in favor of anti-discrimination laws as opposed to just opposing state-supported segregation. That would have been the more philosophically consistent position. Um, fine, fine. But still, um, Martin Luther King, if he had made some errors, he still nonetheless, I think, would have rejected the Black Lives Matter movement. He would have rejected today's condemnation of extremism. He obviously understood the proper purpose of education was not propaganda, but to teach people to think independently and you're going to blow him off and not give him credit where it's due because he made some other errors. He opposed the Vietnam War, not because it was none of our business, but because he thought it was racist. Okay, well, that's still a good reason to oppose the Vietnam War. And the fact that he didn't have a sophisticated view of foreign policy that entailed going to war only if it was in America's self Again, this is ridiculous. I ended up blocking this person, but I ended up blocking him not because of these comments. And you, I think I have this is a public post, so if you go to Facebook, you know, you follow me, you can see what this guy was up to. Um, after I called him on it, saying, "Look, yeah, sure, he's not 100% ideologically consistent with our views, so condemn him." So then he comes back and he says, "Well, uh, Leonard Peikoff dismissed these other people, and so therefore." <laughs> And I deleted that and then blocked this guy because he doesn't understand it. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about that issue because it's relevant to this issue of dogmatism and objectivism. I love how this stuff just kind of all interconnects, stuff that's come up in personal discussions and then as well on uh, political discussions. But there's a difference between Leonard Peikoff's dismissal of certain people within objectivism versus our dismissal of Martin Luther King because he happened to make some errors, which is a completely unfair thing. Um, I'm getting a couple messages here. Let me go over to the studio and make sure everything is still connected and good. Yeah, it looks like we're good. Yeah, he took a shot at Leonard, says Corey. He did. And so I went ahead and blocked him because that's my prerogative. It's my wall. Don't go calling me a censor because I block people from my wall on Facebook. It's my wall. Facebook provides it to me. It's my little forum. And if I'm complimenting Martin Luther King. First of all, don't give your critique of Martin Luther King in six different comments, which is what this guy did. It's, it, it's just annoying and silly. Um, put it all in one, if, at least. you know, I'm sure. I'll, I'll accept some disagreement, some reasoned disagreement. Put it all in one comment. Don't be obnoxious. So already he was being obnoxious. And then he comes in and in, insults my ex, who I care for. And that's ridiculous. So, no, he was gone. Um yeah, so Martin Luther King is. He was a hero. I'm very happy to have the holiday, and I'm very happy to have an intellectual ally in him on some core issues, even if we don't 100% agree. I think it's a, a great thing that he's there. Now let me see if I can go back over to the blog. Typically when I'm running the show... I'm running the show and the chat room in one browser, and I'm running the blog and all of my articles in another. And that's why I'm apt to make the error of closing the wrong window, because I'm all in one today. Okay. 
Uh, it, also, if you go to the blog and you see the, the links, I've got the link to the Objective Standard blog post talking about, in, in, you know, in essence, the essential good of Martin Luther King, that he supports the fundamental principle of, of America, individualism. And then the Ayn Rand Institute had a post about the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., just inviting you to consider the issue of racism in general and reminding you of the excellent essay by Ayn Rand on that topic, the topic of racism. So go check that out if you have a chance. Okay, I've got a number of people who are on the switchboard, but again, if you want to talk, you press the one button and then you can go ahead and chime in. If not, then I'm going to go ahead and dive into Edward Snowden. Rob says, I keep an eye on Twitter right now in case he pardons Snowden. Yeah, I, I'm expecting there's a possibility of the pardon of Snowden at any minute. Oh, and they say he's holding one long press conference. Oh, it would be wonderful. It really would be wonderful. I mean, I couldn't totally forgive Obama for all the damage that he's done to the country, but at least if he did one good thing as he was leaving... And if Trump is able to undo some of the damage, I would end up just having a lot better opinion of Obama. I'm very concerned about what Trump is going to do with respect to Snowden. Oh, you said, uh-oh. What's the uh-oh, Rob? Is the uh-oh from something else or is it from Snowden? Go ahead and, and type out what your uh-oh was about so I can check it out. Okay, we are still connected, so it's not that. I, I'm interested. He's been rambling on for an hour now? I thought he had his farewell address, and then we were done listening to Obama. And this means I'm going to have something I'm going to have to go read and analyze. And he's been rambling for an hour. This is scary. Oh, you've got everything on one computer. Yeah, so you're also a little bit technologically challenged. Anyway, if you can let me know, I'll keep running back and, and checking the chat room if we do hear anything about Snowden. I want to go ahead and just give my case, again, for why Snowden would be pardoned. It's at the very last minute. Of course, Obama's in the middle of giving a speech. He's not going to be influenced by me right now. But here I am, the one small voice, giving you just my take on why she, we should pardon Snowden. There is the Pardon Snowden website. If you have not yet signed the petition, you might be able to have a little bit of an influence by going there and signing the petition. I signed that petition. Sign the letter and urge Obama to pardon Snowden before leaving office. Time is running out. They have a countdown. Fewer than two days, fewer than 48 hours left. We got one day, 23 hours and some odd until Obama leaves office and can no longer make this right. I've got links to you know, some of the material that I'm just going to be kind of glossing over in a very general way. But if you want to look more for my full case on privacy and Snowden and everything else, then go ahead and go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com. I've got all the links there. Let me pull up the right notebook where I made some some notes for today. If I can find it. This is so funny. Yeah, I think I think I probably put the notebook somewhere as well. Oh my gosh. Okay, you guys, I'm going to be running to get a notebook. I'll be right back. Hi. This is funny.
Okay, I multitask. I got uh, notebook and water. So let's talk a bit about Snowden. Um, the first link that I've got in the program notes is to the course that I gave for OCON. You know, the Ayn Rand Institute holds a conference every summer. There's going to be a conference this summer in Pittsburgh, I believe, and that's pretty close to Falling Water, kind of cool location, so you can go check out Falling Water while you go to a wonderful conference. Uh, I gave a course, I think it might have been 2012-ish, I can't remember exactly, but it was called Toward a Society of Privacy, and I talked about the nature and value of privacy and about my ideas for its proper legal protection. As a Supreme Court case came down and as Edward Snowden came out with his revelations, I started to see a little more clearly the impediments to the proper legal protection for privacy. And that resulted in just this one-hour lecture that I ended up giving at another OCON called Legalizing Privacy, Why and How. And I've got a link to that as well. And then the third thing I have a link to is Don't Tread on My Metadata. And that's just a written version, in essence, of, of my argument as to how we need to really legalize privacy. So let me give you you know, sort of a shortened explanation of material that's in this. And this is my book in progress. It's been in progress for a while, and I need to actually get finished because if I'd look back on my whole academic career, this is kind of the one thing that I have really to contribute, I think, which is just this thought on how to properly protect privacy. Um, in my course, the Tortoise Society of Privacy, I talk about the value of privacy in terms of productivity, how privacy is necessary for productivity. Of course, it is for also speech, communication, and everything else, but also for relationships. I know we all have social media and Facebook and everything, but if you share every single detail of your life out there on social media, then what sort of selective sharing do you have yet to do with someone who is supposedly truly dear to you? Uh, selective sharing of information about yourself is one of the things that makes for great friendships and, and partnerships. And I think that you you know, cheapen them by having no privacy. Similarly, if the government is constantly invading your very private communications and space and everything else, which is what, you know, it's one of the things that we learned from Edward Snowden is that sometimes these NSA people were snooping in on some very private things. If you have that sense that Big Brother is watching you all the time, it's going to degrade your feeling about how intimate your relationships are with your friends and partners, et cetera. So there's there's going to be this degradation of relationships with a lack of privacy. There's a value there that needs to be protected. Now, then the question is, how do you properly protect it? And this was the work that I did through my whole dissertation years where I was questioning the idea that you had to have a distinct right to privacy. And instead, I argued that what we do is we protect our privacy by means of our rights to property and contract. And so what we need to do is have a more robust protection of our rights for property and contract in order to restore privacy. So I understood that for a long time. But then what happened 
is there was this case, the Supreme Court case, and the decision was announced in 2012, United States versus Jones. And that was the case in which Scalia wrote that it is a search, it is a search if the government attaches a GPS device to the bottom of your car. And, you know, then, of course, you have to have a valid search warrant, right, in order to be able to conduct that search. Uh, that was a great decision, first of all, I think, because, yeah, it's a trespass to chattel. It's a trespass to your car to put that GPS device on. And so what Scalia was moving toward in that opinion and in other opinions was, uh, you know, back to the construal of the Fourth Amendment in terms of persons, houses, papers, and effects being protected, a more physical interpretation of what a search is, which had been lost for many decades. So I love that trend in general. But in addition, there was a little kind of back and forth between him and Justice Sotomayor in which Justice Sotomayor, who I usually don't agree with very much, she was pointing out a certain inconsistency in Scalia's opinion and saying, hey, um, some of what you're saying here, it, I agree with your holding overall. She agreed overall. It was a, a, I forget, it was an overwhelming majority in favor of this holding. Uh, but her, you know, she had it for, I think, different reasons. She says, well, I agree, but don't you have an inconsistency here? Because we have these other cases that have been upheld under the third-party doctrine. And so doesn't your holding mean that we need to reconsider the whole third-party doctrine? So she, she caused quite a stir by calling for this. But So that got me thinking about this so-called third-party doctrine. Now, what does that doctrine say? It says that whenever you share information with a third party, you thereby lose all reasonable expectation of privacy, as they call it. You lose that expectation in whatever that information is. And so, therefore, it's no longer protected by the Fourth Amendment, you know, according to Supreme Court jurisprudence from Katz versus United States back in the 70s, um, no longer protected by the Fourth Amendment. And that means that the government can obtain this information without a warrant, Right, No probable cause, no particularized suspicion. What does that mean? That means that the privacy of anything that you share with a third party is protected only at the mercy of legislators. If they decide to protect by law the emails that you have stored on the server from your ISP or whatever, then okay. It's protected, but it's at the whim of the legislator. And and I think the only reason that there hasn't been more pressure to overturn this third-party doctrine, the way that it's been applied really since the late 70s, there was a Smith versus Maryland was one of the cases having to do with telephone records. Um, in any event, uh, so yeah, I got, I got lost on the train. I thought giving you a case citation there. Uh, so the only reason that there hasn't been more pressure to overturn this doctrine, I think, is because legislation has protected us to some extent. But what Edward Snowden pointed out is that since the Patriot Act, 2001, after 9-11, there has not been adequate protection for enough of the information about us. The government has, under the Patriot Act, under the guise of it, done all sorts of things that if we knew about it and if we had evidence of it, Snowden thought, 
we would be horrified. And he was right. When all these revelations came out about all of our telephone records being collected in bulk, everything that Verizon, all the service that Verizon provided for all of its customers, all that metadata routinely being turned over to the government without any probable cause, without any particular suspicion, this is horrifying to people. Same with the prison program and everything else, right? But it turns out, because of the third-party doctrine and because plausibly you can interpret legislation to make that legal, then there's a color of legality to all of this, right? That's what's there. And so for me, Edward Snowden's revelations was kind of the last piece of the puzzle to say, look, we have to overturn this third-party doctrine. It cannot be the case that simply because you share information with a third party, therefore there is no longer any Fourth Amendment protection for it. Don't you have a contract with that third party that you're sharing the information for only a certain purpose? I share information with Facebook or other service providers only for a limited purpose, and that doesn't mean that I should therefore give up all rights with respect to a search based on probable cause, particularized suspicion, et cetera. Um, why do I use the slogan legalize privacy? Because if you consider that issue of the third-party doctrine in conjunction with the fact that today so much of our life is conducted by means of sharing information with third parties, whether it be online or with our banks or all sorts of other examples that I've talked about in, in some of my lectures and, and writings. Um, today, you cannot have privacy consistent with a third-party doctrine you know, existing. Um, there, there's no way today to have it. Now, when our society wasn't so technologically advanced and you weren't routinely and all day long sharing information with third parties to the extent that we do today, then yeah, privacy, you could say it was still legal, even though that third-party doctrine existed on the books. Uh, but today, especially with that interpretation of the third-party doctrine that seems to still be being upheld, uh, we just don't. We don't have legalized privacy. So that's why I say we need to legalize privacy. We need to get rid of the third-party doctrine. Edward Snowden has played an indispensable role in the quest to legalize privacy. What he's done, I think, is necessary. Of course, it's not sufficient because all we've seen so far is legislation that has protected our privacy a little bit. But, you know, again, I don't want to be at the whim of the legislatures. I covered a story just last week, I believe, in which they're saying that they're reintroducing legislation according to which the email that's stored on a server for longer than 180 days would also be protected by a warrant requirement. That's good. It should be the case. But this should be a, a matter of constitutional law. This should not be a matter of legislation, in my opinion. And what do we need in order to overturn the third-party doctrine? We need to have uh, standing. We need to have standing to challenge this in court. And what Edward Snowden and his attorney have very aptly explained in various videos that you've seen out there. You know, if, if you still have a doubt about Snowden and you haven't done it yet, I urge you to watch the Periscope. He did a Periscope interview with Jack from Twitter, and he laid out the case for why he provided such a unique value and um, that basically you could not have standing to challenge in court 
these programs, these rights-violating programs by our government, you couldn't challenge them in court without the evidence that Snowden provided. There had been attempts to challenge those programs, and they failed for lack of standing. You need to be able to show that you yourself are a party who was damaged, and you couldn't do that without proof that these programs were doing this bulk metadata collection. Um, so that's, that's it in a nutshell. He provided this indispensable tool for challenging them uh, in the courts of law, and we need to challenge them in the court, and we need to bring it all the way to the Supreme Court, and we need to have the Supreme Court actually overturn this third-party doctrine. Without Scalia on the court, I don't know what the prospects are for that. I don't know enough about Donald Trump's picks and what they're likely to do. I know that Sotomayor had indicated a willingness to reconsider the third-party doctrine, but then later sounded not quite so excited about it, and so I don't know where she would stand, but I would hope that she would carry on the tradition. Um, so, Snowden, is he perfect? No. He's, you know, as far as I can tell, a little bit too sympathetic with Glenn Greenwald and some of Glenn Greenwald's anti-American sentiment on the issue of fighting terrorism. If you listen to Snowden in that Periscope, though, he doesn't say anything that I recall that I actually disagree with. Sometimes there's a little bit of emphasis that I just wonder. But, you know, he points out the fact that none of these programs that, you know, these rights violating, these horrible programs that our government has been conducting, they're just indiscriminately collecting data about you, this metadata, and putting it in these huge databases, right, Big Brother style, None of these have been effective in preventing terrorism. In fact, we're seeing terrorists, you know, we just saw most recently in Florida, is the one that I recall most recently. Somehow these keep happening, even though these programs still exist. Yeah, they've been modified a little bit under Obama, but there, there has not been enough curtailment of this bulk data collection, in, in my opinion. There's still a lot more work to do. And Snowden lays out the case for why what he did was indispensable for challenging these programs and the fact that these programs, practically speaking, have not achieved the goal that supposedly they're aimed toward, which is protecting us from terrorism, preventing terrorist acts. Yeah, Robert in the chat room says that Snowden should have been a much easier pardon decision. Yeah. Instead, he says that the president is wasting time justifying the Manning pardon. This is really, really ridiculous. Now, James is sitting here in the chat room. He says, Snowden revealed that the U.S. government was spying on all of us, and we might not have known otherwise. He says, Manning was in the military and revealed diplomatic cables that did not reveal a whole new problem, just endangered soldiers. That has been my impression, James, from the little bit that I've known. And, you know, again, maybe the things that Manning was exposing were things that our government was doing wrong. Um, but a lot of times what we're doing wrong in foreign policy isn't as cut and dried, in my view, as the how wrong these bulk data collection programs were. These bulk data collection programs are a clear violation of our rights. 
They should not be legal. The Fourth Amendment should not hold them legal. By the way, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of an error theory about this. Um, in academics, we call it, you know, what's the error theory? How, how did they get this to this place? Uh, the reason that we have the third-party doctrine is actually a decent reason. It is that what we wanted to be able to do was, and, you know, it's, that's, I'm giving you kind of a pragmatic gloss on it, but it is right, and I'll explain why in a minute. Um, you know, imagine you've got uh, Tony Soprano with his criminal endeavors. And, you know, you remember the scenes from the episodes of The Sopranos? He'd go down into that basement or whatever, and he'd talk with the people, and they'd talk about whatever illegal thing they were about to do. They're always going to kill somebody in some gory, horrible way that I can't watch. Um, but, you know, they're talking about their stuff. And imagine one of those is a government informant. It is a good thing for that government informant who gets the information from Soprano to be able to go ahead and turn that over to law enforcement and not have that be deemed a search, right? Their Soprano is willingly sharing this information with this guy. And that guy just goes over and turns government informant. Now, that's how the third-party doctrine arose. It said, look, you know, Soprano told him he doesn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the stuff that he told this guy while he's making his criminal plans. And so, therefore, you know, that guy is able to go and share it with the government, right? Soprano's sharing it knowing that this person could go tell somebody else. So how do I treat that case, right? Because on the one hand, I think it's very wrong that the government can just go to Facebook and get all our information without a warrant. But at the same time, I think it would be good for, you know, a government to, you know, to have a government agent infiltrate the mafia, get the information and be able to turn it over. Or, you know, you could turn somebody who's already in the mafia to an informant, give them a reduced sentence or, you know, maybe let them off entirely, whatever. This is all good stuff. So how does that happen? And the way that I look at this is I say, look, Tony Soprano is making a contract of some kind with this guy that he's talking to, right? He wouldn't be telling him anything unless he needed him to help carry out the task, right? So what they're, what they're doing is they're plotting whatever their criminal activity is. They're agreeing, you know, you do this and I'll do that. And as part of their agreement, they're agreeing not to tell anybody about it as well. They're agreeing to keep it private. And so the way I would analyze that situation is what they're doing is they're making an illegal contract. They're making a contract that the object of the contract is the, you know, violate the rights of somebody else. And so that contract should not be upheld, including any privacy promises that they're making about keeping this information private. So whereas the contract that we have with Facebook is a perfectly legal and legitimate contract, and that contract with Facebook should serve to protect our information to the extent that they promise to and not have Facebook turn it over to the government without a warrant based on probable cause, based on particularized suspicion. Facebook should be entitled to keep that information private for us unless they are presented with a warrant. And, um, you know, so the, a, a good legal contract should be able to provide that protection. An illegal contract should not be upheld to the extent of any of its aims, including the privacy provision. 
Uh, Ken in the chat room says it's a contract which cannot be upheld by law, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you have an illegal contract, it is unenforceable. That's what the common law says. And so why not go ahead and analyze that situation of a government informant under this common law doctrine of illegal contract? So that that I just gave you in a nutshell, this is the whole contribution that I think I have uniquely in my whole academic career is this, and this is what I think needs to happen. But again, you couldn't even raise the question of either overturning the third-party doctrine or at least changing the scope of its application. You couldn't do that without Edward Snowden, and that's what makes Edward Snowden a hero. Now, the last piece of the puzzle for Snowden as to why he's got to get this pardon, he needs this pardon, is that first of all, he doesn't get standard whistleblower protection. And I had a Facebook friend who was posting earlier, and and she's right. She's saying, look, um, if you do what Snowden did, you're not technically a whistleblower because you're in effect saying that what the government is doing is wrong, but it's not within you know, the kind of procedure of the government itself. The whistleblower program is for you working within the government and going up the chain of command and all this stuff. Uh, okay, fine. You want to say he's not a whistleblower. I don't care what how you define him, but what he has done is he exposed constitutional violations by our government. And as Jan, you know, John Bolton, I got to debate John Bolton on this. John Bolton pointed out all three branches of government have signed off on these programs, these rights-violating programs. So really, Edward Snowden thought the only option is for him to go to the public with it. If he is brought back to the United States, he would be probably, under anybody in the Trump administration, he would be tried for treason. And in fact, Pompeo, who is Trump's pick for the head of the CIA, had said that he thought Trump, I mean the Trump, uh, Snowden, should be tried for treason and executed. Executed for what he's done. Again, what has Snowden done? He has exposed, and I believe for earnest, correct reasons, he has exposed systematic rights violations, constitutional right violations by our government. And he's done so in a case where there's no way to feasibly challenge these in the way that they need to be challenged. They need to be challenged in a court of law, and therefore you need to have standing, which means you have to come forth with the evidence that you've been damaged. <sighs> Sean Murray in the chat room is saying, the United Nations has just tweeted, governments should end prosecution of whistleblowers like Assange, Snowden, Lux Leakers, etc. You know, I, I don't want to, again lump Snowden in with all these other people. I think Snowden is much better than most whistleblowers. Uh, but he, I strongly believe he needs to be pardoned for the whole case that I, I laid out here. You know, Privacy is not legal right now. The only way to properly legalize it is to challenge it in court. The only way to challenge it in court is to have standing. The only way to have standing is to get the information that Snowden has given us. And he has... I've watched a ton of interviews with him, and either he's a great actor or he is actually really earnest, even if you think he's mistaken sometimes or he associated with the wrong people, Greenwald or whatever. Whatever you think, I think he did the right thing for the right reasons, a necessary thing if we're not going to go into 1984 land. And therefore, I, I see him as heroic, and, and he should be pardoned. Um, 
People are watching horror movies and such in there. <laughs> and they're talking about Al Gore as well. Selfishness in the chat room says, now all the parts of the government are demanding access to the surveillance data. If the Supreme Court doesn't rule on it, I can imagine the court being awash in lawsuits, i.e. the third-party doctrine. A lot of people don't really keep track of how this happens, but Obama has used his fabled pen and phone to order, executive order, the combining of these different databases. And, you know, to take this a step further and just show you how ominous it is, right, the government is each of its little departments, right? There's a, I forget, you know, Credit Financial Protection Bureau. I don't know, I'm making up an acronym. But the government purports to be protecting us from evil credit card companies, Consumer Protection Financial, What I can't remember. Um, there's so many acronyms. But they purport to be protecting us from these credit card companies. And so they collect all this financial information about us and our credit cards and our spending habits and everything in one place. And then they're collecting other information about our health from because of Obamacare and everything. Obamacare in part, in one of the most alarming parts of it, is allowing the government to collect a whole bunch of health data about us. And that is truly horrific. Um, and then there's all these other ways in which the government is collecting information about us. There's, of course, the database about you know, background checks for guns and everything else. And Obama, after the Sandy Hook thing, gave an executive order, pen and phone, and ordered the combining of various of these databases to collect more information about you. If you've ever studied Jeremy Bentham, he used to talk about this concept he had for a prison he called the Panopticon. And the idea of the Panopticon is you could have one guard watching 24 hours a day all these prisoners so that at any second the prisoner feels like he could be being watched 24 hours a day. And you did it by a physical design of a prison, right? The guard's in the middle, and then there's all these kind of spokes of a wheel all the way around him, and down each of the spokes is like a hallway with prisoners, you know, their cells and everything. So one guard in the middle could efficiently be watching all kinds of prisoners around him 24 hours a day. Uh, what we have now is a virtual panopticon in the sense that the federal government has access without probable cause, without particular suspicion, no warrant requirement. It's just whatever legislation deems acceptable. They can have all this information about you, about various little aspects of your life, right? There's those cameras on the roads that take the little pictures of your license plate as you're driving by. So they know that you were in X place at X time. There's all your phone records, right? There's all the, like I said, the health records, your credit records, all this stuff. And then they have a consent decree with Facebook. And Lord knows what they're getting from Facebook because of the consent decree. Um, you know, we continue on. We know this, right? We know we don't really have privacy vis-a-vis -vis corporations or government. We're still living our lives as much as we can. But it does affect us. It affects us, you know, at least a little bit. I still keep talking out about these issues, right? I've got, you know, a webcam sitting in front of me right now. I don't know, NSA, hi. You know, every so often I wave at them. Um, you don't know, right, that they're, if they're watching you at any given time, it really could happen. Edward Snowden talked about the fact that it could. I'm very outspoken about this. Oh, well, it could be. Um, but you keep on, right? You keep on because it's the right thing to do. It doesn't mean you're not affected by it, 
the fact that we are still out there trying to live our lives as best we can doesn't mean that it's not affecting you. If you go look at my little attack watch as a you know the case study about four stops thinking it's the same issue with privacy to the extent that you know that there's a privacy issue those values that are centered on privacy are impacted in your life even if you you know resolve you're just going to go ahead and keep living your life even though this happens and you're maybe going to make little modifications here and there to enhance your privacy vis-a-vis the NSA or anybody else you're still affected to some extent the values in your life are still affected to to some extent so Again, this, that's probably the most passionate and complete case I can give for why we've got to give Snowden the pardon because he is giving us a necessary piece to the puzzle to legalizing privacy. <laughs> Corey in the chat room says, "Give him the finger." Okay, I just gave him the fi- I just gave the webcam the finger. So if anybody at the NSA is watching, yeah, I just did that. <sighs> Snowden was guilty of watching the watchers. What I like is on Twitter. Snowden, as far as I know, he still follows only one account, and it's the NSA, which is pretty funny. It's exactly perfect. Herman the German, he knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. NSA employee of the year. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. That's pretty much what it is. Let me go back over to... I've I've got a number of people on the switchboard. I have nobody, as far as I know, the one button. So let me know if you do want to talk. Go ahead and press the one key if you want to chime in on this. I'm open to discussion on any of, of what I've just done. I've just given you this long tirade, but it's, I guess, my last gasp about pleading for Snowden to get a pardon. Um, like I said, if you want to look at more, I think I've given you a pretty good summary overview of, of my view on privacy, but there's more depth in those sources that I link at the blog, and it's don'tletitgo.com for the program notes. I've got a few other stories to talk about before we go. One is New York Times trots out today conveniently. You know, New York Times, love and hate, right? I'm happy to have them on board as a critic to hold Trump's feet to the fire for the next four years. At the same time, you look at stuff and it's just so predictable. And every so often, if you follow me on Facebook, I'll give you a little snapshot about what they're doing with their headlines. And it's a little bit propaganda-ish there. But what do they put out just you know, a couple days before Trump's inauguration? And we know that Trump's inauguration probably means that so-called climate change policy in the United States is going to change dramatically in favor of freeing up energy markets. So what does the New York Times put out there today as one of the top headlines? Earth sets a temperature record for the third straight year. And they try to show you, you know, it's been one of the hottest years on record. And, oh, my gosh, climate change is so horrible. We have to do something soon. Don't let Trump Take away the EPA and all that regulation. Oh, it's so evil to use fossil fuels, right? I'm not even reading it. I'm just going on knowing exactly what they're doing. Um, This article, again, I don't know, go in and nitpick their statistics and their data if you want to. You know, again, I really like Alex Epstein's methodology for arguing about this stuff. He looks at this and he says, okay, so the old Peter Gabriel album title. So, um, you know, the fact that it's warmer does not mean 
first of all, that it's a catastrophe. Everyone's out there catastrophizing. You know, it's so horrible that we're changing the climate and that things are warming and everything else. No, that's not necessarily catastrophic. And then the other thing is, what is it that you're proposing to do to supposedly combat climate change? The thing that you're proposing to do is going to destroy human life on this planet as we know it now, or even as we could say it might be and ought to be. Human life has improved dramatically due to the use of fossil fuels. And if you take the total context, you know, what is it that makes life on Earth more habitable for human beings? The continued use of fossil fuel is going to achieve that end much better than curtailing our use of fossil fuels in order to combat so-called climate change. We're not going to be able to change the climate that much by curtailing our use of fossil fuels, first of all. And the fossil fuels themselves help us to protect us from the extreme effects of climate and environment and everything else. So, you know, again, uh, there are many people who like to go out there and they like to question whether there really is climate change. My approach is to follow the research that Alex has laid out in his book, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and to say, okay, yeah, maybe there's some climate change. But A, the results of that climate change are not as catastrophic as everybody is saying. The doom and gloom just has not happened. These predictions have not come true, all of these you know, per, uh, predictions of, of catastrophe. But at the same time, um, you know, look at what it is that these people are calling for. Uh, and uh, just to give you one little example of the sorts of things that these so-called climate change fanatics are calling for, I've got an article from Stephanie Gutman, and it is, U.S. is going to lease the Atlantic Ocean for offshore wind farm off of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. An offshore wind farm paid for with your tax dollars. This is something that our outgoing president, Barack Obama, has set in motion. A federal agency said Tuesday it is offering 191 square miles in the Atlantic Ocean for a commercial lease to develop an offshore wind farm off Kitty Hawk. The announcement by the U.S. Bureau of Ocean Energy Management... Oh, God... Uh, marks more than six years of research and analysis for developing an industrial-scale wind farm off North Carolina's coastline. Much of the ocean area initially identified by U.S. officials was scratched off the list because it conflicted with shipping routes, military zones, environmental ecosystems, as well as tourism and recreation, which are significant contributors to the economies of coastal communities. But nonetheless, now they're saying screw all that, right? Forget the shipping routes, the military zones, the environmental ecosystems even, uh, tourism, recreation, all the income from that. Forget that. We got to make this taxpayer subsidized, ugly wind farm that's probably going to kill a lot of birds, right? And is not even hopeful to generate a profit. Maybe wind in some places can be more efficient than other of these so-called alternative energy sources. But if it was profitable, it wouldn't be our government doing it. It would be private companies doing it. So this is ridiculous. Uh, what can we hope for under Trump? That Trump comes in and undoes this plan 
some people are wondering, you know, if there are contracts actually being drawn up as Obama leaves office, is Trump going to be able to undo it? As far as I know, Trump, you know, Obama's trying to tie up everything irrevocably as he walks out the door. It's just the sort of thing that you've got there. Going over to the studio. Again, nobody has, has pressed the one. So I guess that does that, oh no, reconnecting to the server, what does that mean? Are you guys hearing me? I hope you guys are re- are hearing me. Reconnecting to the server. Let me go ahead and hit refresh on my chat room. Oh no, server is too busy. Okay, I have a question icon. Server is too busy for my chat. I don't have my chat up. Let me see if I'm going to get my chat. I do have somebody who actually called in and wants to talk, so that's good. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? This is Jim. Yay. Uh, you know, uh, Jim yes. Valiant. Yes. Can you hear me? I rec- Yes, I, c- I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. But the chat crashed okay, for excellent. me, too. Okay, okay. So, But we're here, and hopefully people can hear us. And if they can't, right. I'm hoping that Blog Talk is at least recording us. Oh, God. <laughs> on the premise that that's on the premise that all of this is happening. Right. Um, did I did I make my whole defense of Snowden's pardon? I think clear enough. I think I did. It was utterly brilliant. In fact, your your discussion of the third party doctrine is the best I've I know of. Period. Um, you're absolutely right. It, it's strange to me that a, that the presence of a third party should make a conversation no longer private. If the third party right. is uh, uh, agreeing in a legal agreement, uh, as, as you point out, that's the important distinction, to also be part of the private conversation, how does that take away the privacy that I expect or anyone should be able to expect? That's just exactly. nonsense. And if the provider, like a phone company or Facebook or Twitter or whoever the heck it is, agrees and offers privacy as part of the deal, then that doesn't vitiate the privacy at all, so long as uh, the the contract for the private communication is itself for a legal purpose, um, as you point out. And so I I, right. I, I not only think you're you're right, you're the you're you're the best on the subject that I've ever heard. Well, and I'm I'm the total outlier in all of the scholars, but that's not really surprising, and you know that from your own work that. You know, being although you're, you know, we're going to talk about your book on a different show, but I'm gathering that there's some scholars in your field that are coming around to your point of view, which I think is awesome. But we'll talk about that. Um, did did you call to talk in talk more about the Snowden pardon thing, or did you call to talk about the dogmatism, which I do have to get to? You had said it that was, you had a particular interest in the topic of dogmatism, yes or no? I do, and it really relates to what you began the show with. Um, you know. When we consider someone like Snowden, <laughs> to put it together with the dogmatism issue, the question right. is not whether Snowden himself is an objectivist or perfect in, in, our, in our eyes. The question is, has the person significantly moved the ball forward? Um, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, um, right. well, let's go all the way back, Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> yes. none of those guys were perfect. All of them no. made errors. But all of them were heroes because they significantly moved human progress forward um, and are heroes in my mind for that reason. Um, In 1963, Martin Luther King delivered his famous uh, speech on the steps of the the 
the Lincoln Memorial. And, uh, you know, I have a dream. And it was that same mm-hmm. summer that Ayn Rand herself published her article on racism. I think it was September of 63 uh, in the Objectivist mm-hmm. uh, newsletter. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So Rand herself was addressing the issue at the very same time, in effect, that Martin Luther King was. And while it's true that the 1964 Civil Rights Act did create, um, did go too far, it made it made private discrimination uh, a crime, unlawful in effect, uh, and certainly uh, uh, for public accommodations they could no longer lawfully uh, discriminate, which is, right. uh, in my view, wrong. But it's yes. not as though uh, there was much of a period in American history where we didn't have a form of legal discrimination based on race. We went from from allowing Jim Crow in many places to then saying, well, no, we went to the other direction. No, 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 now you cannot discriminate, which is, in effect, a form of discrimination. Um, So racism is is something that our government has always struggled with. Martin Luther King, I think, while he made certain errors – did help move the ball forward. If you look at the, the, the just public opinion polls on race or, or racial intermarriage, during the course of our lifetimes, the civil rights movement had um, a positive effect in that regard. Um, and while, of course, we have to be uh, clear and consistent about our opposition to those bad aspects of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which Martin mm-hmm. Luther King certainly was a major uh, um, promoter of, uh, nonetheless, I think we have to judge uh, individuals in their context, um, whether that's Thomas Jefferson or Aristotle, uh, who I think most objectivists would agree are heroes. Yes, yes, exactly. And I mean, the, you know, Thomas Jefferson, slaveholder, blah, blah, right? Um, right. But, so there, there are a number of ways that we can criticize. You know, to me, I found it ironic that I was getting attacked for complimenting and and just you know uh, basically you know promoting Martin Luther King's idea about extremism and stuff, and it was by someone who himself is one of the people who always accuse objectivists of being dogmatic. So to me, it's like why why did he come that way and do there's there's an you know this this Trump election to me has stirred up so much weirdness within the so-called either objectivist movement or, you know, the felt, you know, the followers of Ayn Rand, all the various shades of followers of Ayn Rand, you know, the, the kind of interplay between them and the infighting and everything else that's just been brought out a lot more in the wake of this election from Trump. And in part because they see that there's a lot at stake right now. Things are you know, conditions out there are pretty bad in a lot of sectors and from, you know, looking at it from a lot of aspects in the culture and in government and everything else. But nonetheless, I just think that so much of this is is just unwarranted. Why can't I just go out there and admire Martin Luther King for a lot of the great things that he did? Obviously, the context is that I disagree with anti-discrimination laws, affirmative action laws, et cetera. Well, there, there obviously was still a horrific racism problem in America. He was killed for his beliefs mm-hmm. by a racist. Yes. Um, that kind of right there, you know, um, I have to just <laughs> admire anyone who would uh, risk his life, as he clearly did, 
in order to fight uh, something that was clearly evil, racism. And and to use the move the ball principle forward uh, in American history, America did have slavery, horrific slavery. And then Jim Crow, the, the Bill of Rights did not get applied uh, to the states and, uh, except slowly and piecemeal across the 20th century. Uh, <clears throat> people were still going to jail for their free expression of their beliefs around the time of World War One in this country. Wow. And so yeah. the question really is, <clears throat> does, it, does Trump represent a step forward? or a step back. Now, in my view, he is uh, a step back for the Republican Party and for the country, just as Obama represented a step back. We have, unfortunately, been heading in the wrong direction in, in the most recent years. Uh, right. Nonetheless, so long as, given the context, the, the, the terrible context we're in, so long as someone uh, recognized the problems of a Hillary Clinton or or Donald Trump or or Gary Johnson, I, I myself was pretty forgiving about who they were actually ending up voting for because I can easily see the problems with each. Um, right. I, when it comes to Donald Trump, I really do not understand why people were drawing such gigantic red lines in in the sand unless they were thinking that Hillary Clinton was a saint or Donald Trump was a saint, right. those are right. patently <laughs> irrational positions in my view. Um, but, no, exactly. <laughs> but so long as they recognize the, the problem, I, and given the, the, uh, the huge unknowns that Trump represents, it, it was really a hard, hard call. And uh, given, uh, given the context, I think it's, it's, it's hard to, to, to become very morally judgmental when the context is that complex and it's that hard a call. Yeah, so so do I. I. I agree with you completely. And so, you know, on this show, I've talked about it before. When I say that I have, you know, I'm a little bit undecided and I really didn't even know whether I was going to vote for Gary Johnson pretty much up to the last minute, I wasn't doing it just to keep listeners and not offend everybody and just pretend that I, you know, there there was a real kind of a, a quandary here going on and it's because we're in this place where you don't know exactly what the effect is going to be and one of the things about Donald Trump is that he is unpredictable we don't know exactly what's going to happen um will you stay on Jim while I talk about the issue of dogmatism and if you want to chime in after I kind of say my initial little piece I, I'd love to Absolutely hear your sure. thoughts on it so for me a lot of these issues and I've talked to you about hope and thanks for indulging me on that um I bump up against it in real life or maybe in something I read or whatever, and then suddenly I start thinking about it more. And what happened recently, there's an objectivist uh, or maybe a fan of Ayn Rand uh, who I was messaging with, a, a friend on Facebook, and uh, this person raised the issue of dogmatism. Oh, yeah, you know, there's dogmatism, and I walked out of a lecture at a conference once or something. And, you know, first of all, the the, the objectivist philosophy is not – dogmatist, you know, we never would say within Rand's philosophy and objectivism say, you should take somebody's word for something that, you know, we're not open to actual contradicting evidence, some evidence that contradicts our point of view. Um, and so then the question is, well, why do some objectivists nonetheless get perceived as coming across as dogmatists? You know, this is something that you hear quite often. And the thing I've been thinking about recently is, you know, there's a few reasons that this could happen. First of all, sometimes certain objectivists in certain contexts do come across as dogmatists, right? Um, 
they just sometimes certain ones do and some people do it more than others some people do it only on certain occasions but then those occasions become very notorious um and it's really just an error it's a failure i think to take into account the context of the audience at the particular time when you're making your statement about whatever it is um i think sometimes the statements of objectivists, whether they're you know intellectuals or otherwise, sometimes the statements could be taken out of their context. So suppose um, you know an objectivist intellectual is giving a lecture to an audience that's all presumed to share a certain knowledge about objectivism, right? And maybe there's a certain statement within the lecture that's delivered in a way that assumes a certain context. And then somebody goes ahead and quotes this person in a different context entirely where it comes across as dogmatic. So that could happen. Um, The other thing is the speaker could actually be mistaken about the context of knowledge of the people sitting in front of him, right? And actually just be speaking very passionately about something that is just completely obvious to him given his long study of objectivism and context of knowledge and everything else. And then, you know, it kind of falls the wrong way on the audience because they don't share the complete understanding. You know, Rand used to talk about the idea that you should have a truck-like reality understanding of the philosophy, right? That should be very, you know, connected. And uh, any kind of principle within the philosophy should be connected to your values. You know that it, it means you're going to get hit by a truck. You know, something important to you is going to be smashed in the road by a truck or something. Um, I think that some people who have been studying the philosophy and applying it earnestly for decades could have a very vivid understanding of why something is the case and get kind of very passionately involved in explaining a position on a particular issue and maybe for the briefest second sort of forget that the audience doesn't share the context, right? Um, so I, I think this happens, right? So uh, sometimes I think it's, it's you know, an innocent error on the part of the lecturer. Sometimes I think it's people taking the lecturers out of context unfairly. Uh, but I also think it's, the audience doesn't understand this idea that you've got in front of you sometimes a speaker who really knows his stuff and is really passionate about this and maybe in this particular instance is not making his case clearly from top to bottom. You don't understand why he holds the particular position that he does so passionately that he's delivering the pronouncement on the issue the way that he that he is. But why not just sort of say, okay, well, you know, this formulation, I don't like it and here's why, or, you know, I I need a little bit more evidence and can you tell me this, as opposed to, oh, you're a dogmatist and I'm going to walk out of your lecture, right? Um, People within, you know, the the group of people we'll call fans of Ayn Rand, they will throw the baby out with the bathwater in the face of this type of error. And, yeah, sometimes you could say, okay, it is an error, that particular pronouncement about who you should vote for in this election or whatever comes across as dogmatic. And, you know, you're not providing the context that people would need to understand why you think it is so obvious that if you don't vote for X, that therefore you don't understand objectivism or whatever it is. Um, 
but you don't write off the person. You don't go posting snide, you know, critiques of the person on social media. This is just unacceptable garbage in, in my view because you you just don't understand, you know, kind of the earnestness of and the, the decades of, of work and understanding and the fact that this person is telling you something that they think is true based on the total context of their knowledge and how you know, the vote in this election relates to important values in their life and things like that. And I say, have some sympathy for people and just, you know, try to get out of your shell a little bit and understand that. And maybe you say, okay, I disagree with that pronouncement, but don't dismiss the person. The charge of dogmatism, I think, is often dogmatically applied. Yeah. Dogmatism is asserting something without having good reasons. Uh, That is to say, certainty isn't a problem. And if someone is wrongly certain about something, then the problem isn't the fact that they uh, claim certainty. It's the fact that they've made a mistake. (laughs) So instead of of reacting to uh, an an assertion uh, that, like you say, made passionately or with great certainty by saying, hey, that's dogmatic, point out where they're wrong. Yeah. Instead of attacking the idea of certainty, <laughs> see, uh, I think that's an, a distinction that we that we often fail to make. Um, you know, it, the part of the problem is the context. Uh, we're still overcoming the dark ages in, in a in a mm-hmm. profound way. We associate, especially philosophical certainty, with religion, with dogma. The only way that a person could be certain about uh, issues uh, of of that you know, uh, general abstraction in the area of philosophy must be dogmatic in nature, must be a kind of faith or or irrational or non-rational way of, of going about it. And, of course, uh, contemporary scientists and contemporary philosophers will chime in and say, well, yes, of course. <laughs> to be scientific or rational requires that we be forever tentative, uncertain, uh, even relativistic, <laughs> some of them will say. So we've been trained to believe that philosophical certainty equals dogmatism. And when right. uh, someone makes a, just a bad argument and makes it with certainty, the problem isn't that they believe in certainty. Um, in fact, they may believe that, you know, this is a, a very highly contextual thing. They'd only be certain under these circumstances, and they think they have good reasons for it, and they're willing to trot out those reasons and give you a logical argument. Well, the problem there isn't dogmatism. The problem is they made a mistake. <laughs> certainty is possible, exactly. and they were claiming it, but they were claiming it for a wrong reason. <laughs> When it comes to objectivists, this is particularly ironic, isn't it? Uh, Oh, yeah. uh, (laughs) Some of the most uh, strident uh, 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 enemies of dogmatism um, that they perceive among other objectivists become extremely dogmatic about that position themselves. (laughs) Yeah, and, uh, you know, that's true of so many issues in philosophy where you can show people to, you know, to be hypocritical about a certain view. And I love Aristotle's use of those techniques, you know, in, in showing the truth of the axioms and stuff that Leonard talks about in, uh, in, in OPAR. So, so yeah, I mean, you've obviously confronted this issue a lot in your work because in writing your book, The Passion of Ayn Rand's Critics, you, you know, kind of were engaging with a lot of, of this, you know, this criticism of objectivism and uh, of Ayn Rand, of the objectivist movement and stuff. Um, but for me, 
I, you know, I'm just, I'm just kind of bumping up. But, you know, I get uh, every so often people, you know, write messages and, you know, well, what do you think about Atlas Society and this and that and whatever and dogmatist this and, you know, okay, um, I, I have to bump up against it again. And, you know, again, I just kind of went through, I guess you'd say, another iteration of the spiral this week because of it. Well, you bring up, I was just about to say, the Atlas Society is an interesting example because, uh, you know, they'll, they're the ones who exist for the very the whole raison d'etre is that the uh, that Ayn Rand, the Ayn Rand Institute and that uh, many objectivists in their view are closed and dogmatic and uh, and so what you find is a strange kind of dogmatism on their part. Um, I am a big fan. There was news today, just today on social media. I'm a big fan of an artist. I knew him, in, I met him in New York um, over 30 years ago, Michael Newberry. And mm-hmm. he's a good artist. I mean, I, I, I like him as an artist, but he's now an artist in residence, the first artist in residence at the Atlas Society. I and saw that. I saw that. I'm pretty sure that the Ayn Rand Institute would never have a, quote, artist in residence. Wouldn't that imply that certain art is officially objectivist to blessed and certain art is not? I I don't know. I don't know that it would necessarily do that. I was thinking, you know, the person would just create art for various of the releases and different things that they're doing to promote the ideas. But there might be that implication, right? You know, that whatever this person creates is therefore somehow great art. And, yeah. You, you definitely have to to be, be aware of objectivism, that. Uh, Leonard Peikoff was very, very clear and precise about this. Objectivism doesn't even include Ayn Rand's taste in art. Right. right. <laughs> one one can be a perfect objectivist without, uh, say, uh, having an aesthetic reaction to skyscrapers. I mean, I think no, that was exactly. a good example he even used. Yes. And yes. it and, seems and, to me that when we we go down the path of saying, aha, we have an artist in residence now, this is the official objectivist art, <laughs> that, that is precisely the sort of, of um, rationalism and intrinsicism uh, that uh, characterizes a dogmatic approach to ideas. Yes. Ironically, no, they'll, they'll, they'll have, on the one hand, uh, the the work of someone uh, who says ah well religion isn't so bad and we can we can, uh, 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 religion uh, Grossman's recent work for example uh, at uh, at the from the Atlas Society religion isn't mm-hmm. so bad on the other hand so they're way got a wide open mind about that which is patently absurd and is a philosophical issue and on the other hand they have no problem being very intrinsic and concrete when it comes to what our authentic artistic expressions say. Of objectivism, and that's a that strikes me as a rather bizarre combination. But but then again, that's the uh, false alternative that dogmatism presents. On the one hand, you're going to be subjectivist, and on the other, you'll be a dogmatist. Yeah, I mean, there there's very there's different issues. You know, one is an organization that's kind of a think tank could have different ideas about how to spread the right ideas, and that's fine. You know, people have disagreements about what is the best way to go about it. 
Do we need, you know, and this is one thing that Grossman had been talking about with, do we need more pure objectivists or we don't just need more people to read Ayn Rand's writings? Well, maybe you say, okay, you know, we don't need to focus so much on how many, quote, pure objectivists there are. Maybe we just need to focus on getting more people to read Ayn Rand's writings. Well, the Ayn Rand Institute is doing a bunch of that. There's an, other people who are sort of, you know, loosely affiliated with the Ayn Rand Institute who are doing a bunch of that, just trying to get people to read Rand's works without necessarily focusing on creating, quote, unquote, pure objectivists. Okay, fine. That's a strategy issue. It's much different to say, um, I want to term as objectivism something that Ayn Rand didn't think of. Um, James, uh, I'm going to be running out of time here in a second. Do you want to have the last word? No, no. Thank you. This wonderful show once more, Amy, really. Thank you very much for, for helping me brainstorm a little bit about it this morning. I, I appreciate your help. So we'll we'll talk again soon. Um, so everybody, if you want to continue the discussion, go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com. There are some stories I wasn't able to get to over there, so I'll have to carry them over into the next week. The one thing I did want to say is I've got a link about DeVos. Um, I, the one thing I wanted to say about her is that she is not an unqualified positive. She does have connections to people who want to use the schools as a vehicle for promoting religion, and she may be steering your tax dollars to give vouchers for religious schools for the purpose of making the country more religious. So there is actually an issue there. Um, other than that, other things are just a little bit more for your amusement and edification, and we'll talk more next time. So again, next Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. Thanks for joining me, and uh, we'll talk soon. Bye.